0: What's going on guys? Welcome back to the show. Today we have a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. I appreciate it. There were a lot of questions this time around, so I picked the ones that I thought would help the most people. If I didn't answer your question on here, you'll probably get a DM from me answering it there. And yep. And so I like to keep these episodes around that 30 minute mark. So I, I could have answered them all, which would be a really freaking long episode. So without further ado and rambling, here we go. First question is from Alanaville, and she asks, are diet breaks recommended during a 12 week deficit? And if so, when to do so and how often. Now, the keyword here is recommended. Recommended? Yes. Physiologically mandatory? No. Like, could you do a 12-week deficit without taking a diet break? Absolutely. Nothing bad is going to happen to your physiology that a diet break would fix. And as much as the, I don't know for how many of you guys are familiar with the Matador study, but a lot of this is like one of the, you know, Pioneer diet break studies. As much as the Matador study wants to conclude that that using the utilization of diet breaks or intermittent dieting is going to help with lean body mass retention, I just don't believe that to be the case. And for those of you guys not familiar with the Matador study, basically one group dieted for I think eight weeks straight, so eight weeks in a deficit, and another group dieted for eight weeks in the deficit, but also eight weeks at maintenance. Essentially, they were doing two weeks in a deficit, then two weeks at maintenance, two weeks in a deficit, two weeks at maintenance, um, and that group after 16 weeks, eight of which was spent in a deficit, had a greater retention of lean body mass. I think also greater reduction in fat mass, maybe. Um, but that was not a comparison of apples to apples. The, the group that dieted for eight weeks continuously, they tested them at the end of those eight weeks. And what we should have done is it should have been eight weeks at, in a deficit and then eight more weeks at maintenance. So to equal length of both groups where the, the intermittent dieting group dieted for 16 weeks, but two on, two off, you know, the group that dieted for eight continu- continuous weeks could have spent the next eight weeks at maintenance and probably would have ended with, you know, let's say the same amount of lean body mass retention. I mean, dieting for two weeks on, two weeks off for 16 weeks or doing eight weeks in a the deficit and eight weeks at maintenance, I would have to say at least at face value that those people are gonna have very, very, very similar results. And so uh, don't think this whole like retention of lean body mass is a reason to do diet breaks. Now, the reason I still recommend them And this goes into a little bit more recent research by Jackson Pios, um, who just had a really, just did a really, really, or published a really, really great study on diet breaks where we proved, he essentially proved that there is none of this like, you know, greater lean body mass retention, basically comparing again, continuous dieting or continuous deficit calorie restriction versus intermittent calorie restriction with the utilization of diet breaks. Essentially both groups saw exactly the same results. Now in his study, the difference between the two groups was not in the retention of lean body mass, but actually in the, the subjective rating of hunger and satiety. And we saw that the, he saw that the group that had diet breaks overall reported feeling more satiated across the time that they were in a deficit. And so practically diet breaks can be a really great thing to kind of break up the, you know, the perhaps daunting nature of a 12 week deficit. And so if you're imagine running a marathon, it's like, you know, having water breaks along the way, might really be helpful. And, you know, I'll take a step back and even say, just knowing that those water breaks are available to you. So even if you start with the intention of being in a 12 week deficit, just knowing that it's possible for you to take diet breaks, just knowing that those water breaks are, are, are there along the way, if you want them can help you compartmentalize the deficit into something where it's like, okay. Maybe every, and the, the the rest of your question is, you know, if so, when to do so and how often, I would say that there's, again, no rule book on this. There are some people that I know Lay Norton for himself, I think he does like a three to one, three weeks in a deficit, one week at maintenance. For a lot of clients that I work with, we do four weeks in a deficit, one week at maintenance, four weeks in deficit, one week at maintenance. Um, and so you can pair that one week of maintenance with a, you know, a, a long weekend where you're going to be away or a wedding or some social events. But the truth is you don't have to take them. And if I have a client who's at the end of a four-week, their four-week, uh, you know, block of being in deficit and it comes time to take a diet break and they're like, Jordan, I feel fine. The scale's moving. I don't have anything big coming up this week. I'd rather just push on. You know, it's the person in the marathon who, who you know, sees the water break and, you know, decides, okay, well, actually I'm in rhythm right now. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, my pace is going really well. I'm not that thirsty. I'll just keep going. Maybe I'll catch it on the, on the next one. Um, and so I don't think they're mandatory. I'd say they're recommended and I do think that the Jackson PO study shows that there might be a little bit better, uh, you might do a little bit better with hunger and satiety with having breaks than being in con- a continuous deficit for about 12 weeks. So cool, let me give you a, a more concise answer to that question. If so, when and how often? So are they recommended? Yes. If so, when and how often? There's no playbook on this. So I think, you know, every two to six weeks having a one to two week diet break is a a good rule of thumb. And if you happen to find yourself in rhythm and feeling totally satiated when that time comes and you don't want to take the diet break, I think you're also should feel empowered to do that. Um, I would say a little asterisk on that is that we're pretty shit at, at giving into our negative biofeedback. And a lot of us are really good at convincing ourselves. We feel fine when in reality, taking a break is a good idea. Um, And so a lot of people are nervous to take diet breaks and they'll say, no, Jordan, I feel fine. It's all good. But in reality, they're scared of going to maintenance. They're scared of what might happen on the scale. They're scared of, you know, going off the rails and eating in a surplus. So I would say there is some benefit to sticking to the plan, even if, you you know, part of your gut says you're doing just fine. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're way uh, more comfortable in restriction than we are in abundance. And so a lot of times you're just afraid of what eating at maintenance, what will happen if you eat at maintenance. And that's not a fear that I would want to exist. I would want you to kind of lean into that and say, okay, if I'm afraid of this, I probably should take the diet break because it is what, what scares me. Cool. Wow. Long answer to the first one here. Next Sam Viveros asks, does do creatine levels reset if you haven't taken it for more than four months? Second question. Is it okay to train on an empty stomach? We'll keep this short and sweet, Sam. It takes about four to six weeks for your, to get to back to your baseline creatine levels after stopping taking creatine. So do your creatine levels reset at four months? Yes, absolutely. Um, If you haven't taken it for more than four to six weeks, you're probably back at baseline. And it takes about four weeks to saturate. So that does kind of make sense. Just, I don't actually know if there's any logic there at all, but it takes about four weeks to saturate. It takes uh, seemingly about four to six weeks to uh, uh, reach baseline again. Second question is okay to train on an empty stomach. It absolutely is. If you're doing basic hypertrophy style training, yes, you are, you know, using muscle glycogen, but it's not a hugely glycogen depleting style of training. It's not like if you're doing hit or intervals or CrossFit or sprinting. Um, And so you can probably perform fairly adequately on an empty stomach. My my little piece of advice would be just experiment with eating a little bit before you go, you know, an hour to 90 minutes beforehand. Because you might perform better, you might feel better, and that might be something that you want to do. Now, you know, if you're somebody who gets up and trains within the first hour of waking up, I think it's totally reasonable to be like, fuck that, I'm gonna, I'd rather you sleep, I'd rather you sleep as long as possible than get up 90 minutes before you have to, because Jordan said you gotta get a meal in. Like, you're totally fine to train on an empty stomach, absolutely fine. I think if you're training early morning on an empty stomach, the whole, you know, having some protein after your training session becomes just a little bit more important because you, you've trained probably on like a t- at least a 10 hour fast because you haven't eaten since last night's dinner. And I would just try and get some protein into your system, you know, fairly soon afterwards. Don't freak out like you need to bring your protein shake to the gym, although that's a decent strategy. Um, get some protein after your training session if you're training fasted. Next question is from the greatest Instagram handle I've seen in a while. <laughs> Ungraceful Potato asks, everybody talks about tips and tricks on increasing food volume for a cut, but rarely the opposite how would you suggest going about cutting down on the volume after a cut? Many still hold on to their diet tricks weeks or months after and can find it hard to let that habit go due to fear of hunger, maybe. Now, I love this question and I bumped it up all the way to the beginning of the podcast here because I absolutely love it. Now, so what basically the question is saying, is like, you know, when you go into a deficit, some of the things you do, you increase food volume, right? You probably Eat more fruits and vegetables because they're lower calorie, higher volume. They're higher satiety due to likely higher uh, uh, higher fiber content. You eat more, pro- more lean proteins. And so you're, you're strategizing around getting a high satiety per calorie ratio for the foods that you're eating because your total amount of calories is low. So you need to make the most of those calories so that you can fight hunger, so that you can succeed in fat loss. It makes total sense. Well, what about when you're unraveling that and you're trying to get back to maintenance or maybe you're going to a surplus and you're really holding on to some of those habits, high fiber, lots of fruits and vegetables, lean protein, like not a lot of calorie dense foods. How do you unravel that? Like, What are some strategies? And I will say this very bluntly, most people who struggle with eating enough, right? Most people who are listening to this that have a calorie amount, that they're supposed to be eating, whether it's their coach pushing them to maintenance or a surplus or reverse dieting. And if you are struggling doing that, it's very likely that you are still demonizing certain foods here's the deal, you always have room for a PB&J. And so somebody who's like, yeah, you know, I'm really just, I'm, I'm struggling to hit my 1800 calories in my reverse diet. It's like, no, you're not, you're not. You're, strug- you're not struggling because you're too full. You're not struggling. You're struggling because you're still demonizing the kinds of foods that might really help you get there. You're still worried that a PB&J, a bag of chips, Uh, 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 you know, a a fattier cut of meat or a slice of cheese or eating the whole egg versus egg. You're still afraid that something bad is going to happen. And so, you know, combining that with this, you you know, the last, you know, maybe two to three months of you really strategizing around maximizing satiety per calorie, combine that with the fact that you're you're still having this subconscious uh, demonization of certain foods. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. So I think if you're out there, you're listening and you're struggling to hit a calorie amount that you know you should be, Ask yourself, are you still demonizing certain foods? There's nobody out there that that cannot fit in like one of those, uh, uh, oh my God, it's blanking, one of those smuckers, the PB&Js, what's it called? Um, oh my God, the smuckers PB&Js, like the ones that are just like the, in the like in the circle. Oh, I'm losing it, somebody's gonna yell at me. I need someone to yell at me, what are they called? Um, yeah, in any case, I'm blanking. But the truth is you always have room for that. And you know, you always have room for uh, two, three, 400 calories of ice cream. Like, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go out and eat that. But I, what I'm saying is the same things or the uh, the, the things that you're doing to, to uh, um, succeed better on lower calories, to increase satiety per calorie, you want to do some of the opposite things. Like, it, you want more calorie-dense foods. You probably want more lower satiety carbohydrate sources. You probably want more meals per day. You probably want a larger feeding window, you know, like... If you've always been somebody who pushes your first meal back later in the day and you're really struggling to eat more, like maybe start eating first thing in the morning, right? Increase the size of your feeding window. That might have the same but opposite effect of decreasing your your feeding window. Um, and so, yeah, I think most people that are struggling to eat more are still demonizing certain foods because they're so hooked on their fat loss habits. And, and, and I, I got to tell you, I understand because when you go from your regular life and let's say somebody signs on with me and we, you know, uh, maybe we do a maintenance phase. Maybe we don't, maybe they're ready for a deficit. You know, we've decided that they are ready. Sometimes it takes several weeks to get in the rhythm with the eating pattern, the eating style, the certain foods that are going to help you maximize hunger in that deficit. I'll have clients who, you know, three, four weeks are like, you know what, I'm actually finally getting into the groove with my calories. And I don't think that that is a unique thing. I think there's a lot of people listening to this that are like, oh, that makes total sense. You know, That's certainly for me, my second and third week in a deficit were way way smoother just because I got in rhythm, I got a, I had a clearer idea of what my food shop was gonna look like, what foods I wanted to have stocked, what were my main protein sources. You know, it took me some time to transition the way I was eating to maximize that satiety per calorie ratio. And when I first had initially gone into a, a surplus, It took me time to figure out how to do that too, because I had just spent so much time eating all these fruits and vegetables, lots of, you know, high fiber legumes and lean protein sources. And, you know, to, to go five, six, you know, five, 600 calories up above that and assume I'm going to do that with those same high satiety per calorie foods, it's going to make it difficult. So, you know, I think I had to challenge myself. I think that you, the, the listener has to challenge yourself. Like, are you still demonizing certain foods? Because you have a goal of increasing your calories for whatever reason. Maybe it's just reverse dieting back to maintenance. Maybe it's going to a surplus to maximize muscle gain. Maybe it's going up to maintenance, maybe in a surplus to optimize hormonal function. Maybe you've, you know, uh, been in a state of restriction for super long. And it's hard for you to eat your calories because you're still hooked on your fat loss habits. And so you need to start to look at that and be like, am I demonizing certain foods? Am I afraid of, you know a cookie? Am I am I thinking that there are still, the, is there still this dichotomy of good and bad foods that I'm wrestling with? And if there is, I think you need to challenge that and say, listen, my goal, I will be further along towards my goal if I have this peanut butter and jelly or a, a little bit of ice cream or whatever. Um, if I do that versus if I stop and I say, ah, it's just too hard to get to my calories. It's not, like you can do it. You just need to let go of this, I'm, I don't want to say, you know, orthorexic, but this like very clean eating focused of like, You're not eating 3,000 calories of chicken, broccoli, and brown rice. You're just not. And so, you know, raising your calories is going to mean changing not everything, not everything. I think a high, high, high percentage of your food should stay the same. But there's like, you know, I don't know, somewhere 10 to 20% that should start to very gently shift into that, you know, maybe more calorie-dense foods, you know, maybe instead of having you know, a a ton of fruits and vegetables, maybe a little bit less instead of having, you know, maybe incorporating for me. I know pasta was a super easy way to get more calories. And now that I'm in a deficit, I haven't touched it because I know it's low satiety per calorie. I'm having, you know, uh, potatoes and rice because those things fill me up a little bit more. And so making some of those changes and saying, hey, I I have this goal. I need to eat a little bit more. And so I need to look at my relationship with food. Am I still demonizing certain foods? Because if I am, then I need to challenge that. And very gently look at what I did to, Optimize my satiety on lower calories, and maybe do some a little bit opposite. Just move along the spectrum a little bit more. Cool. Good question. Next question is from D. Baelish Dana. Great question, and she asks, "What's the purpose of myo sets versus regular sets?" And for those of you guys who don't know, um, let's say a, 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 a myo set is like a pretty much a rest pause set. And so essentially, a myo set would be, let's say you're doing bicep curls, and you have it, you know, a set of 10 to 15. And so what you would do is you would do your set of 10 to 15, you would take your biceps close to failure, and then instead of resting 1 to 2 minutes to let your biceps come all the way back to baseline, you would rest only 15 seconds, just enough time to let them metabolites clear, that that burn feeling go away, just enough time to perform an, about another 5 reps. And so you would do that, the whole 15 second rest and then about 5 more reps. I don't know, one to five times after your original first set. So again, it would be a set of 10 to 15, let's say for example, and then instead of resting one to two minutes, you rest mm, 10 to 15 seconds, maybe a little bit less, and you crank out another five. Now those five are going to feel like death. They're going to feel like the last five because you're only giving your muscle a very short time to rest. And so the purpose of doing this, if we back up a step, we have to look at what reps grow muscle. And this might be an oversimplification for some, but I think it actually works out really, really well, is you want to think of the last five, the five reps that are closest to failure. Those five grow muscle, right? It's not that the first 10, let's say you're doing a set of 15, it's not the first 10, don't grow any muscle, but you know almost all of the muscle that has grown is caused by those five reps that are closest to failure, the five hardest reps. I mean, intuitively, it makes sense. It's like the hard reps grow muscle, great. So now you do this set of 15 curls, And let's say you take it all the way to failure, just for a a clean example here. Well, you got five, what we would call effective reps, right? 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Those were the five that grew muscle. Now, if you rest one to two minutes and you do another set of, I don't know, 13, well, you got five effective reps. You got numbers 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. And you do another one to two minutes and you get a set of 10. Well, you got another five effective reps. And so what myosets do is they actually, all they are is a time saver. And so basically I would say they have a good stimulus to time ratio and it allows you to kind of mimic those three straight sets, but in a much shorter time. So instead of doing a set of 15, then resting two minutes, set of 12, and then resting two minutes, a set of nine, all of which in three sets, you got 15 effective reps, right? Five, five effective reps per set. What you would do is you would do the 15 reps all the way to failure, which by the way, you don't have to do, but for this example, you're all the way to failure. And then you would rest 10 to 15 seconds and you would do another five. But those five would feel like the last five because you're only giving yourself long enough to rest to perform another five. And you would be again at failure. You would do five and then be at failure and you'd rest 10 to 15 seconds and you would do, you know, about five. And then you'd rest 15 seconds and do about five. And now you've accumulated, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 effective reps, but in a much shorter time. Right? Instead of having to wait the one to two minutes for your standard regular sets intervals, you rested just long enough to perform the last five. And you are able to squeeze in more effective volume into a much shorter time. Now, it's not better or worse. And it, a couple notes on myo reps. I would probably only do them on, or I would primarily do them on isolation work. Um, you know, I don't think squat myo rep sets are a good idea or deadlift my rep sets. I think I would save it for more isolation work. Uh, leg extensions, leg curls, your arms, your delts, um, you know, even isolation, pec moves, machines, and flies. I think those are really good free weights and heavy compounds. Probably not so much. Now, what I see a lot of times is if, I, if I'll program sets for one of my clients who's never done them, you know, they'll write down 15 in the first set, 13 in the second set, 10 in the second set. And what that means is they didn't, they probably didn't take the first set close enough to failure because if they did, then there's no way you can do 13 again, 15 seconds later. You can't go to failure 13 and then 15 seconds later, do 13, do two less, or they rested too long. And so if you're out there and you have my reps in your program, you know, you want to look for those mile rep sets, the sets after the traditional set to be in that like four to seven rep range and if you're getting much higher than that, then it's either the set before that was not close enough to failure to be fatiguing enough to cause you to drop your reps down, or you're resting too long in between sets and you can rest 5 seconds. You know, if you're doing myo-rep calf raises or myo-rep wrist curls, you can you can take a calf a standing calf raise to failure and then in 5 or 10 seconds, be ready to do another 5. That's how quickly the metabolites will clear when you're doing calf raises. And so the point is to jam in as much effective volume per unit of time. And so it's a good stimulus to time ratio. So hope that was helpful. I'm a big fan of my rep sets. I think at the end of the workout, for some of your isolation work, when you're at the end of the workout, sometimes the idea of having six more sets of arms, you know, three sets of tricep pushdown, three sets of cable curls, something like that, it's a little daunting. You're like, ugh, I got another 10 minutes. And maybe you're mentally checked out. You had uh, some really heavy compounds, really wore you out. And the idea of, you know, 10 to 12 more minutes of straight sets is a little bit daunting. And if you can do one, of those sets in a myo rep version, you know you might get it done in four minutes between both exercises. It might be one long two minute set where you're adding on these little myo sets, um, and it can be a really really nice way to just change up the monotony of straight sets. So it provides, you know, something of an equal stimulus but in less time, and it breaks up some of the monotony of your straight sets. And at the end of the workout, when you're feeling a little bit worn out, you can really always muster up some myo reps. Awesome. Next question is from. Diplo underscore human. I think it's a she. And she asks, how many exercises should be aimed for at one hour? I prefer compound lifts. Well, uh, it it depends how many days a week you're training. If you're training twice a week, then I'd say it's probably more than if you're training five times a week. Right? Because what we're looking to do is, you know, get enough volume across the week to cause muscle growth. So if you have more opportunities to do that, you can afford to have slightly lower per session volume. Right? If you're training three times a week. You might need a slightly higher per session volume than we're training five times a week. And I guess while you're asking this, I, I think on the whole, people are doing way too many or often too many different exercises with not nearly enough intensity per rep, per set, per exercise. And you can probably get away with less. Not that you always want to get away with less, but you could probably do better with less or equal with less if you actually brought some intensity to your sets. Like I love giving clients workouts with four exercises and then scratching their heads because I've seen their prior workouts and it's like eight to 10 exercises of like just absolute nonsense. And if if I know that if you have eight, if you have eight to 10 exercises in your workout, you know, two to four sets each, if you walk out of there not dead, then there's something the matter. Like there's just no way to be, to do that much productive volume and it not kill you. Like it's just like if you're doing you know, and I I put, I thought about this question for a bit. Like if I, you know, I want to give you a, a, a framework to, to, you know, some actual specific answers here. So I'd say, I'd say four to six exercises per session is probably the sweet spot for per session volume with, you know, and and especially because you said you like heavy compounds. I think, you know, per unit of effort compounds are going to be more systemically fatiguing and you probably can't do you probably can't do six exercises of heavy compounds with enough volume and really have it be all quality work. Some at some point dropping to isolation work that's less systemically demanding is probably gonna be your best way to tack on a little bit more volume. Um and again, I think the 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 question needs context. I mean, if your answer is muscle growth, then it's a little bit different. If you're if your answer is, you know, if you're strength training, you're probably gonna have slightly lower volume, right? You uh you're definitely gonna have lower volume if you're doing it right. So assuming this is in the context of building muscle, I think four to six exercises per session is a sweet spot. But if you're somebody who can handle a lot of volume and you're only training three times a week, you could conceivably go up to eight. You know, and I say the more that you add, it's likely those are going to come from isolation work. So take that with a grain of salt because you said you like heavy compounds. So I do think four to six is probably a sweet spot. But if you're training less frequently and you can handle more volume, you can probably handle more per session volume. But I do think, man, huh? I do think four to six is a sweet spot. If somebody tells me they're doing eight exercises per session, with enough, you know, three sets each. Let's say it's twenty four sets, <sighs> yeah. and if and if at least half of them aren't, you know, isolation like low systemically fatiguing exercises, like I just I raise a skeptical eyebrow that you're actually working hard enough. Cool. Next question. What are we at? Twenty three minutes. What do we got? We got. Oh man, we got a lot more. Oh boy. Here we go. Moving right along. Lara Cantrell asks, "Will my body naturally produce less creatine if I take it for too long, like greater than eight weeks?" And so what your question is asking, is, is there a negative feedback associated, like a negative feedback loop associated with creatina? What that means is like, if you take more of something exogenously outside the body, will your body's natural production of that thing stop because it's getting more of it elsewhere, right? And so we see this sometimes with hormones. So if you take exogenous testosterone, let's say you take steroids, right? You're getting, you're shooting up test. What will happen is your body will actually decrease the natural production of testosterone because it sees that it has enough testosterone. And so your body's like, oh, you're getting it from this needle here. Like, I don't need to make as much. That's a negative feedback loop. Um, And so that does not happen with creatine because most of the creatine that you're getting is actually from food. And so there isn't a negative feedback loop because it's not only something that you're producing endogenously. You are getting creatine from food. And so regardless of whether or not, regardless of how ironclad that rationale is, we don't see a negative feedback when it comes to creatine. If you stop taking creatine, it's not like all of a sudden your creatine falls below baseline because your body has had exogenous exogenous creatine for so long, then now it doesn't, and then now it's producing less. That's not how it works. Um, And just while we're here, you can take creatine forever without cycling and like cycling on and off without any negative benefits. You don't have to come off of creatine. It is not something that has a negative feedback loop. It's not something that has long-term negative effects. It's just something that you're taking that is natural, that is found in food, that you are actually giving your body enough of to maximize, you know, strength and performance output. Um, So you don't need to cycle it. Don't need to worry about it. You know, eight weeks isn't even a long time. They've had studies much, much, much longer than that with no negative side effects. So don't worry about it. You don't need to cycle it. Just take it and just forget that you're taking it and just keep taking it because it's not something that you're going to see some drastic, crazy effect where you start doubling all your lifts like, Just take it because you know it works, because it does. There's this extremely small percentage of the population that are creating non-responders, so you can just assume that it's working in the background. And so just take it, don't feel like you're gonna get much stronger, but it's working, it absolutely is. Next question, Taryn Huber asks, how long is a deficit recommended? I've had less progress recently. Two parts to this question, how long is a deficit recommended and is that relevant to you having less progress? Uh, first part is how long is the deficit recommended? Eight to 12 weeks, probably the sweet spot at at, at a clip up to 16 weeks. If, you know, you've had more weight to lose or you have more, a little bit more weight to lose, you can probably see, you know, be totally fine. It's just, let's just sum it up as the heavier you are, the more weight you have to lose, the longer you can go into a deficit before seeing necessarily those detrimental effects. But I'd say up to 16, 16 probably being the maximum or until you lose about 10% of your body weight. And so the whole eight to 16 weeks, let's call it that length is really two things. One, it's a uh, representative of trying to take care of your mental health. And so part of that eight to 16 week bracket is like, man, spending longer than that in a deficit might just be mentally, psychologically super fatiguing. It also represents the amount of time in which people will lose about or can lose about 10% of their body weight. So I'd say it's more important probably. Actually, it's important to see both because being in a deficit for 8 to 12 or 16 weeks, regardless of how much weight you lose, is independently fatiguing. It's psychologically fatiguing. And if you lose 10% of your body weight, regardless of how quickly or how long you were doing it, you've lost a meaningful amount of body weight that it has had an effect on your metabolism to the point where it's probably worth spending some time at maintenance to kind of combat some of that metabolic adaptation. And so... Eight to 16 weeks is great because it both represents the amount of time you might lose about 10% of your body weight, but it also represents amount of time where it's shit, it's just really psychologically fatiguing. So the second part of this question is, I don't know if it's the length of your deficit that's causing progress to all. Like maybe you're not being adherent enough. Maybe you've been metab- you've metabolically adapted to the deficit now that you're a little bit smaller and you know there's a subconscious reduction in meat that happens when you go into a deficit. It's like, maybe your calories just need adjusting. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's the time spent in a deficit that has made you either less adherent or metabolically adapted, but yeah, I would, I would go through that. And I actually have a video, a YouTube video what to do when weight loss plateaus. I'll link it in the description. It will show you what your options are and how to go about figuring out what's right for you. So I I don't know if that's why you haven't been making progress, but hopefully that gives some context as to, you know, why you might want to take a break given where you might be in this, you know, eight to 16 weeks or about 10% of your body weight. Um, I guess being thorough here, if you what does taking a break even mean? I'd say I would take at least half the time that you spent in a deficit at maintenance to have an you know somewhat of an equal and opposite effect on your metabolism, give your body enough food for long enough time and to make some meaningful changes to so satiety signals, satiety hormones, other hormones, and it will just allow you to kind of get back to baseline so that if you want to diet again, you can and doing it from a safe place. Um, cool. Awesome. Next question from Jay Woods by Flo. Best advice for women dealing with hashi and menopause. Metabolic double whammy. First, for what goal? For fat loss, for muscle gain, like general life advice. Um, You know, you might have a slightly reduced metabolic rate, but I guess without any context to the question, my advice would be recognize that, yes, you have some slight disadvantages here, but it doesn't help you to play the victim. There's still a lot you control. And I mean that in an empowering way, not in a discouraging way, not in an offensive way. Just don't think, you know, worrying so much about what you can't control, which, you know, Hashimoto's is something that, you know, the control is subjective. You can control it to some degree, medication, if it's affecting your thyroid, we could talk about that. And so is the menopause from some degree. And I guess my next piece of advice would be go listen to my podcast with Amanda Thieb, who wrote a wonderful book about menopause. I think she calls it Menapocalypse which is amazing, best name ever. Um I'll link that in the description as well and and I suggest buying the book because she talks a lot about this idea of embracing what you can control and not spending too much mental effort on the stuff you can't control. But she also talks about uh you know trying to normalize this whole hormone uh, hormone replacement therapy as something that is a totally viable option or at least something worth exploring for women. So I would definitely explore that. I would see how it marries or how it marries up with your Hashimoto's, but Man, if, if your Hashimoto's is, is, is putting you in a, a hypothyroid state, I would absolutely be taking care of that with a doctor. And so I think the the Hashimoto's is something that is, you should, eat, you should be working with a professional to make sure that it's having the least effect on your life that it can. Um, not everybody, you know, gets to a stage, even with medication, where it plays no part in their life. And so I would absolutely be working with a healthcare professional on that to get your thyroid levels straightened out. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't want to see you play the victim. I want you to recognize that maybe there's some slight disadvantages, maybe a slight reduction in metabolic rate, but there's still a lot you can control. And then I would definitely go listen to Amanda's, the podcast with Amanda, buy her book, start to, uh, um, you know, I don't know how much you've talked about menopause with your doctor, but start to understand kind of what is going on from a metabolic perspective. And, you know, it's less than you think. It definitely exists, but there are reasons that menopause is harder to, to let's say maintain body weight, let's say, or maintain levels of fitness, whatever, that are outside of a reduction in mod- metabolic rate. I guess, I don't know too much about you or the context, so it's tough for me to give advice, but I would maybe maybe consider with big asterisks, the word consider, avoiding super high intense exercise like CrossFit or uh, hit, a lot of HIT training uh, can be super taxing on the body and maybe not the thing you want to be doing right now if you're hypothyroid, um, I maybe would consider avoiding long periods of fasting, especially as a woman. We just don't see, or at least theoretically that women aren't, don't respond as well from a hormonal standpoint to long periods of fasting. So if you're doing intermittent fasting, I would at least reconsider doing that. You know, I don't think it's the end of the world, but maybe keep your fasting periods to maybe 14 hours instead of 16 to 20. We we do see that women tend to respond differently to that, that, uh, level of stress that comes with long periods of not eating. Uh, and then I would maybe avoid lower carbohydrate dieting, um, tends to also not be super helpful, especially when combined with the super high intense exercise and maybe stress from periods of fasting. And then I guess I would also make sure you're getting enough fat. I think getting enough fat, you know, at more than 0.4 grams per pound, uh, 0.4 grams per pound or more, uh, it would be where I would want to see you. So hopefully some of that was helpful and, uh, cool. Next question is from KJ macros. She says, love your podcast. Thank you. I'm starting a mini cut. Should I cut my cows each week if I'm seeing results, even by just 50 to ensure continual progress? And I'm going to, just for context, I'll see if I'm, I'm going to answer this question in the context of just doing a regular cut. And then I'm going to see after I answer that if I would have a different opinion as for a mini cut. So let's say you were doing a regular cut. Should you cut calories each week if you're seeing results, even by just 50 to ensure continual progress? I think every trainer on earth would say, absolutely not. If you're making progress... Leave everything alone. I don't, I don't know if I disagree with that as a decent, like a default way of thinking, because I do think this idea of like racing to the bottom, racing to the lowest calories doesn't always end well, or usually doesn't end well. But I think having this blanket feeling of never in no circumstances, is this a good move? Just isn't, isn't comprehensive. Like I wouldn't just arbitrarily decrease calories each week, especially if you're seeing progress, but man, if you're feeling, like if you're feeling satiated and things are going you know, extremely easy for you right now in the deficit and you're seeing progress, but you are feeling super satisfied and satiated and you want to trade away some of your comfort for faster fat loss, I think you should, you know, maybe with the help of a professional, feel empowered to do so. And and don't get me wrong, I think racing to the bottom isn't is probably not your best bet. But like, why is somebody else get to, why does somebody else get to decide that you're not allowed to decide to suffer more for less time? Like if I said, hey, you can do 16 weeks in a moderate deficit or eight weeks in a slightly more aggressive deficit, like inherently from a from a, 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 a like philosophical standpoint here, like the, the, you cannot say that one of those is better or worse. Now you can say that each one has a pros and cons and that aggressive, more aggressive dieting has certain stipulations to it that, you know, doing it alone and, not understanding the context and not being, you know, maybe skilled enough with nutrition to kind of manage hunger. Like, there are certain things that aggressive dieting is, there's certainly cons. Um, but this idea of, I'm not allowed to lower calories to make this go faster. Like, um, you know, somebody's like, oh, you're making progress. So absolutely don't seek out faster progress. It's like, well, what if you feel fine? And, you know, yes, I think feeling fine. And getting great progress is the holy grail, right? That's utopia. It's the best thing ever. But you might say, well, you know, shit, if at this rate it's going to take me 10 weeks, and that's great because I feel fine right now. And maybe, you know, going a little bit lower right now, maybe it'll take me six to eight weeks. And maybe that's a trade I'm happy to make. Maybe I regret that trade. Maybe I my hunger picks up exponentially, and, and all, you know, I, I look back and say, man, I really wish I had those four weeks of really easy gains. Yeah, but maybe not. And I've had clients who do, we- do much better with, a little bit more aggressive dieting and a little bit more discomfort. And it's, you know, man, I'm not saying everybody should do this. I don't think most people should, I think most people should embrace what you just said of like, I'm making great progress and it's not costing me a ton of hunger. But damn, don't think that that's fair to say that everybody should feel that way all the time in all contexts. Um, Cool. I I just did a whole podcast with Kim Schlag. If you guys don't follow her, she's the best. Uh, At Kim Kim Schlag Fitness. I think her her podcast is called Fitness Simplified. Um, We just did a great podcast on the, uh, um, this idea of making voluntary changes during your deficit to kind of make it work the best for you. And what are the trade-offs that come with that? It's a wonderful episode. Absolutely loved it. Go check it out. I'll link it in the description. Such a good episode. All right. What do we got? We got three more. Here we go, guys. We're at 35 minutes. Okay. We'll go to 40. No big deal here. Katie May main asks, always heard lifting your elbows during a curl is bad. Is this true? I don't think it's a, I don't think it's bad advice to keep your elbows at your side during a curl because I think most people that's going to do more good than harm. You know, it's going to make people's technique more crisp. I totally agree with that. However, mechanistically from a biomechanics standpoint, the bicep assists, the bicep assists in shoulder flexion, right? The raising of the arm and to get the full range of the, of the bicep, you do need to bring your elbow up a little bit, allow that elbow to move forward. And if you watch, I, I know that you're responding to a video of me doing curls this week where my elbows do come off up off my side. You'll see that when I'm using a barbell, I tend to aim the barbell up towards my chin, which usually means like, I don't know, one to two inches extra of shoulder flexion, which does allow me to get that full peak contraction of the bicep. And so is it the end of the world? If, you know, is somebody so wrong if they tell you to keep your elbows at your side? Probably not. I think that there's, you're, you're missing out very slightly on some range of motion, but I think it's better than the alternative, which might be somebody freaking swinging all over the place. Um, I'm trying to think of another uh, a parallel piece of advice where it's probably does more good than harm, but isn't wholly contextual and, and maybe not hundred percent optimal. Um, yeah. In any case, I think the bicep assists in shoulder flexion. And so picking your elbows up a tiny bit, you know, with this whole, like maybe with, if you're using a barbell touching your chin with the barbell might give you the fullest range of motion. And so is it the end of the world if you, keep them by your side? No. Is it an easy adjustment that might let you use a little bit less weight with uh, equal stimulus, which by the way is always a good trade. Yes, I totally do. Um, cool. Next is from Whitney Boggioni. Yes, and she asks, how much protein do we really need to build muscle? Everybody throws out different numbers. I'm gonna give, you, give it to you guys blunt here. In the research, the optimal number or the number from which point we see optimal start to vary decline and we see about optimal gains is about 1.6 grams per kg. And because we're, you know, one of the only dumb countries that doesn't use kg, it's about 0.73 grams per pound. Now, you might that might sound low, Uh, because, you know, we're in this echo chamber of a fitness community that talks about one gram per pound like it's the Holy Grail. Listen, one gram per pound exists because saying 0.7 or 0.8 isn't as easy to do mathematically. So we round up to one because it's an easy easy math problem for everybody and it is for sure enough. That being said, 0.8, 0.7 and a half, totally fine. Seems to be in the research where we see optimal gains. You know, gun to head do I think going above 0.73 might have some, some benefit. Sure. I would say, yes, I would say, I guess it does, but it's probably such a ridiculously vast diminishing returns after this 1.6 grams per kg that I just don't think pushing people to eat way more protein is going to be the best bet for their best life. You know, if you're a pro bodybuilder and that last 1% of muscle gain from going 1.6 grams per kg to like 2.2 grams per kg is like one gram per pound. If that if that 1% extra benefit is worth it to you, then I think that that's fine. I think that, um, you know, we need to decide for ourselves what is most important. And I'd say there are a lot, a lot, a lot of people out there who are eating a gram per pound or shit more than a gram per pound whose lives and quality of eating, enjoyment of their food would, you know, increase massively if they brought it down to 0.8, let's say, or 0.9 or 0.7 because they'd have more carbs and fats to make just the general, the food that they're eating more fun. I also think this you know, a lot of times this pursuit of such high protein for a lot of people who have really low calories means they're not going to be eating a lot of carbs, which means yeah, your training's not going to be super great. And I also think it means very often means very low fat. I mean, listen, if you're, if you're sitting here and you're like, I'm eating 1500 calories in my deficit, but I'm trying to get, you know, 180 grams of protein. You don't have a lot of calories left to hit optimal fat for, you know, hormone production and immune system. Like it's just not easy. And if you do hit your fat, you're probably left, you know, nearly ketogenic at that point because you have, you know, what, 50 carbs? Like, and so I'd rather see somebody bring their protein a little bit down, closer to that 1.6 gram per kg so that they can more easily meet minimal fat requirements. And I, again, you guys know I'm not a huge advocate of counting all the macros, but I think that in general, having more calories for carbs and fats will lend itself, you know, will make it more likely that you intuitively eat your way to at least near optimal fat uh, requirements. So cool. Um, you know, are there circumstances where I would recommend more? That's something I was thinking about. I guess, you know, if you get a high percentage of your protein from incomplete sources, collagen, plant sources, you know, legumes, beans, then I do think that the overall number of protein needs to be higher, right? If you are if you have a, a, a lesser quality, you need more quantity to make up for that lesser quality. Um, and there's this whole debate going, I get a question every single time I put this Q&A up about, should we be counting those incomplete sources towards our protein number, I think you should, unless it's making up such a high percentage where it might actually matter, and then I would still count them towards your total protein number, but I would just up your total protein number, the total goal upwards. You know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to say that not counting any plant protein or collagen protein sources, and then still trying to hit .8 grams per pound with only full, complete, mostly animal protein sources is advice I would ever give, But if you're a vegan listening to this and you're saying, okay, great. So I can only eat 0.7 grams per pound and you're getting all of those 0.7 from beans and from collagen protein or collagen's animal, but like, um, you know, other incomplete sources, not complete supplements, just, you know, beans and and legumes and, uh, you know, grains and other, you know, vegan protein sources. I would say, yeah, you miss, you're missing out. And so I would still count them, but I would get your overall number. That whole 1.6 gram per kg or 0.7 gram per pound would probably mean, I'd want to see it a little bit higher. And so I have several vegan clients who have, you know, we've communicated this. So it's like, okay, we're either going to up the the total overall number, which has some downsides because shit, you know, upping your total protein number means you now need to have more calories, which is why if you're, you know, a vegan out there and you're trying to hit optimal protein for muscle gain, it's just a really freaking good idea to supplement with a complete protein source for sure. Cool. So now I'm just rambling, but if you get a high percentage of your protein from incomplete sources, then I would probably up the overall number. The problem is, most people are like, I eat mostly animal protein, but I have like 20 grams a day from collagen. Should I count it? Yeah, you should count it. It's not the end of the world. Or don't count it, but remember that it's what most of what you're doing, not some of what you're doing. And so, you know, you're mostly having complete proteins, then you're probably good to go. You can keep these numbers as is. But if you're a vegan or you're somebody who just happens to be an omnivore who gets a lot of protein from incomplete sources, then I would recognize that maybe either up your total number or shift some of those incomplete protein sources to more complete protein sources. I guess the other two scenarios where I would advise more protein is if it keeps you more satiated. If you know that going up to a gram per pound keeps you more satiated and that's something you you value then great. Or if you just like eating more protein like then you're very welcome to go higher. I'm not going to tell anybody to go to go uh you know, they have to go lower. The only time you would have to go lower is if, you know, you're having kidney issues or if you have pre-existing kidney issues and your doctor is telling you to go lower. Or if in the first scenario, your protein goes so high that it's hard to meet, you know, minimum fat and carb requirements for just general health. All right. Last question here is from Ellen Grace Fit and she asks, reverse dieted to much higher calories but still having binge tendencies and urges. So first, super proud of you. I think if that was, uh, you know, if you thought reverse dieting and eating more was going to help with your binge tendencies, I think you were were spot on. I think it will help. I think it probably has helped even if it's, you know, like you said, it's not entirely gone. And so, we have to look at again this is not my area of expertise but we do know that binging binge tendencies and urges come from underlying forms of restriction. And so what I think you've done is you've you've fixed the restriction portion of things that is coming from calories. Restriction of calories can often, you know, spur these binge tendencies and urges. However, restriction doesn't just come from the quantity of food, it comes from what you're eating. And so, you know, one I would say Listen. The longer you spend with more calories, the the more likely it's going to be that this is going to continue to get better. Right? The more the longer you spend with a feeling of abundance, where your body physiologically is getting what it needs, then I they think the longer or the more it will help over time. But it's also possible that you're not restricting calories anymore, but you're still restricting yourself on certain foods. And so maybe physiologically you have what you need, but psychologically you're still de- demonizing certain foods. You still you know subscribe to this dichotomous good or bad mentality. And that by itself, independent of calories, can spur these binges. And so restriction is more than just calories. And while I think you did a freaking amazing job getting your calories up, I mean amazing because I know that that can be a difficult thing, be scary, especially if the scale goes up, stick it out and stay there for longer. Maybe keep pushing your calories up and take a look at your relationship with food because you might not be restricting calories anymore, but you might be restricting something else, you know, what you're eating. All right. All right. Thanks for listening guys, right on the button here, 45 minutes, went a little bit longer than I thought, but some really great questions. And I appreciate, to every, uh, appreciate everybody you asked. I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of where optimal meets practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me. If you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes, that stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks guys. Have a good one.